as my sternum gave and its job is to obviously protect your organs, which it did, it fully snapped all the way through and the one of the pieces of my sternum bone then punctured the lining of my heart wall, double punctured and collapsed both my lungs. So my heart was bleeding, the wall was bleeding into my lungs at the same point. 20 minutes after when I was on the way to the first hospital, I felt all this internal bleeding. I felt myself swelling. I couldn't breathe like how I explained to people. It's basically if you like cover your mouth and your nose, you just have a little bit of air going into your nose. That was how I breathed for like four and a half hours. That feeling of the anxiety, not being able to breathe, knowing that everything is shutting down. When you sort of stare that in the face, like I, I said to my friend, what's in my chest? Like what could have happened? And then you start thinking, you know, all your organs, every what if, every worst moment. I just sit, turned to him and I said, like, I'm not ready to die. And I had those words come out of my mouth. And he said, no, you're not. Like, come back to the moment in one, two, out, one, two. It's the fight of your life. Caroline Buchanan, I'm Andrew Connect, and this is the Unpretentious Podcast. Caroline is currently living out the serenity prayer. She's not an addict in AA battling substance abuse. She's an athlete in and out of hospitals healing from a broken sternum. She's lucky to be alive after her accident, but her prolonged recovery has not been easy. In fact, coming back from this accident is the hardest challenge she's ever faced. And keep in mind, this is a 16-time national champion eight-time BMX and MTB world champion, and two-time Olympian. Caroline embodies everything noble and good that the Arthur Ashe Courage Award represents at its best. Her career and courage in responding to her accident justifies her being part of the conversation for that award, in my opinion. At age 12, she wanted to become a BMX bandit, and her dad explained that becoming the top female in the sport meant she would still earn nothing. To make her dream a reality, she would also need to grow the sport, doing PR and marketing at a high level in addition to her training and competing. She heard this and she was in. With her father's support, she has achieved this dream and she continues to give back to the next generation like her mentors and parents did for her. She does this through her girls' scholarship programs, kid book series, and her signature balance bike aimed at kids ages 2 through 5. More than her professional success, these achievements are what her father is most proud of her for. I was excited to try and understand what motivates her to do these things that are hard, if you do them at all, let alone this early in their career, and she continues to do them after an accident that would leave most people isolated, alone, and angry. This is Caroline Buchanan, No Pages Missing. For so many like action sport girls, you sort of ask the question, like, how'd you get involved? And the majority of them have an older brother. So for me, yeah, like I grew up in a small town. Um, it's actually the capital of Australia, but it's a pretty small town, Canberra. And I grew up opposite this pine forest where I'd always like ride my bike. I'd come home from school, play in the trees like I was the ultimate little tomboy. Mm-hmm. And basically anything my brother did, I wanted to do. So yeah, at the age of five, he started racing BMX. My dad then started racing BMX and it was kind of that five-year-old grassroots level entry into 
the world of cycling and two wheels in general. And that's sort of where we began. And uh, my mum and dad's background, the duck genetically, I've been pretty like blessed. They are both competitive, both super high achievers. My dad was actually on the Commonwealth Games squad training for the velodrome, so the indoor like track series. And yeah, he moved across. So that's kind of a little bit more, I guess, where of like my cycling background comes from. But they were really the ones in the beginning that instilled and just pushed me and my brother into anything that we wanted to do. They really supported it because they came from an upbringing um, where they didn't have support from their parents. Both their parents had split up and hadn't been the nicest like childhood upbringing. So I think fortunately for me, I came from quite a, a stable family, which when I was nine said, you know, do I want to go to the world championships for BMX or do I want to get my black belt in Taekwondo? And I sort of said, me and my cabbage patch, Trevor, we're getting on a plane and we'll go to the world championships. And, um, so I didn't end up getting my black belt in Taekwondo, but that opened the door to the world of BMX on a world championship international level. And so by age nine, you'd already figured out that biking's not just something you love. It was, was that kind of your parents recognizing like you're really good at this? They were really good. Like from the beginning, they always said, so long as I was giving 100% at anything that I did, you know, I wasn't wasting my time. I wasn't wasting their time. And they would give just as much to me and my brother uh, based upon our effort. And I think that was really what was always rewarded. It wasn't, it wasn't necessarily the success that was re- rewarded. It was more of the effort. And mm. I'd always put 100% in. I played tennis, taekwondo, squash. Like we lived on a golf course and all growing up, it was just any sport, I guess, any excuse to get out of school to play sport as well. <laughs> I would always like to do that too, but they, they more rewarded like the effort side of it, which is where I think a really strong foundation came from. And I think with me, they always like realize quite early on that like I wasn't necessarily like the best team player because in soccer, I'd want to like run the field and like score the goal, but I'd want to run back and like defend the goal as well. So mm-hmm. more of the individual like sport aspects. When I found BMX, they really like saw me shine and thrive upon the adrenaline, the challenge, being out there on my own and where the success and failure would lie on me they saw it quite early at nine and just thought well let's let's give her every opportunity in the world to to see and like open my eyes so at nine going to Paris and seeing the BMX world championships and all these like kids and adults and the pros from all these countries around the world like to me that was the Olympics in my eyes and I wanted to be like this professional BMX bandit and be the best in the world from then. (laughs) that is amazing that's awesome and so at nine you participated or you just watched no I participated so like in BMX racing from basically five-year-olds to seven-year-olds at the world championships they call them the sprockets and they don't get like uh, any rewards or trophies or participation but seven onwards is uh, like a world championship title you make to the final you get one through eight placing and that's where you rank in the world so for me, I my first world championships, I unclipped out of my pedal in the semi-final, and mm. like I was devastated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, got ninth in the world at nine years old, and made it through to the semis. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have to qualify to get there? So starting at five, started in my local town, sort of city, and then went to more of the 
district regions, so more of the states, and then went to that national level. And it was the national championships that selected my points to then go to the world. So, yeah, it was that natural pathway. And then from worlds in BMX racing to cross over into mountain biking at 15 years old. And that was the natural pathway for BMX mountain biking through to the Olympics. It sounds like you have a combination of you're just naturally driven, like you're describing on the soccer field, where it's like, I just want to get things done and do it. And then your parents have the genetics that you're blessed with. Do you think in order to be an Olympian, this is what it takes is this almost like perfect storm of these great, just all these things that are, that's why it's called the Olympic level to get that good or to win a championship. It's you have to have like this, the best of the best, basically. Um, I think elements definitely like my, I think every strength also becomes your weakness at the same point. And, you know, every weakness can become your strength. But for me, some of my downfalls, I guess, on the field have really been my huge assets off the bike. Like I get a lot of it from my dad, but my dad's in computer IT background. So he's a lot more analytical and quite logical and very process driven. So that really helped me sort of being quite calculated with my career, my planning, you know, my calendars and everything like that. But when I actually got onto the bike, once I got to that level where the risk reward started becoming a lot higher risk, I was never the most talented, gifted rider that would go and jump, you know, the biggest jump out there and be the first to do it in windy conditions and, you know, risk everything. Mm -hmm. I would sort of be the one that would sit back, you know, watch someone else do it first. Maybe I'll wait to the semifinal or when, like, I need to lay it on the line. That definitely has helped my, like, longevity and staying relatively injury-free, like, on the bike. But at the same time, it's kind of been a downfall too because – in BMX, like you really do have to lay it on the line. It's that adrenaline action sport. And so some of my competitors have had that edge over me because they are more willing to be a little bit more, I guess, yeah, have that higher risk and lay it more on the line than me, whereas I'd always be a little bit more calculated. So, yeah, I would say the perfect storm for an athlete, you can work within your strengths, mm. but it's also finding the best that the best avenue that works for you and for a lot of my competitors doing two different sports the highest level of BMX and mountain biking wouldn't work for them but for me I need that variability and I get burnt out quite quick if I don't so yeah I think it's understanding your body like what nutrition works for you but then what I had like the training load works for you as well and yeah for me it has really been that variability and not so much the standard block format which some athletes thrive on so Hmm. yeah definitely my upbringing and everything has helped but I think also understanding who I am as an athlete and like getting a really solid team around me which is individualized sort of my approach to everything has helped just to provide a little background for people you're it's an eight-time world champion like you're saying across two disciplines of BMX and then mountain biking and then 16-time national champion been to Olympics twice so this is the level we're talking about. I'm curious to like dive into your mindset a little more, like you're talking about for you and maybe other athletes are different. You're analytical. And I remember you're talking about one race. You're like, I knew there was three different places I could pass this person. So everything's broke. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like every, and it's, it was kind of like, it's broken down, you know, body position. It's all of that is kind of almost autopilot for you, where it just allows you to perform at this high level. 
But one thing you said that I want to ask you more about is you said that you would picture almost fear as like a visible warning sign and then you would put it aside. Could you help me understand that mindset of how you handle like the emotional, the nerves and the the fear of doing something crazy? (laughs) Yeah, it's a constant like, I guess, love-hate relationship. It's a real like give and take the fear side of being a female in an action sport at that level. There is always always those high risks and you've got to listen to your body for those warning signs. It's telling you those fear responses. It's giving you that warning that you're about to do a jump. It could be something and, you know, it's the body's natural way of protecting. For me, I've always felt that as whether it's a fear energy, a scared energy or where it's excited energy, it's all energy all butterflies and it can all be with the right mindset channeled into whatever the task is at the time where I sort of found was the roadblocks initially was progressing when BMX turned Olympic sport the start hill got bigger the jumps got a lot bigger and the women specifically had to like step up it was a hard battle between well I'm a world champion this should come easy like I shouldn't be fear I shouldn't be afraid like I do this every single day but every time I'd get back up on that start gate, there's always that fear. There's always that adrenaline. And instead of fighting it and thinking that you shouldn't have those warning signs, what worked for me was visualizing it and identifying it. And that's like the mindful practice of being like, okay, like I'm nervous right now. My heart rate's going up. I have those fear warnings. But for me, I'm a visual learner. So I like to sort of grab it and be like, all right, thanks for the warning signs. I like feel this energy coming, put you in the back pocket and like we're in this together. So it was kind of more embracing it and being like we're in it together, whereas the opposite of sort of trying to fight that. And that's like one of the parts of BMX and mountain biking, which really drew me to the sport and why 22 years later I still love it is every course is different. Every time you go out there is different conditions. So you're always in that state where it's that – that love-hate relationship and you've kind of got to work with it it's mental judo where you're taking the strength of your opponent i.e your fear and you're using that against it like you're using fear to get the result you want rather than have it determine the outcome yeah definitely when you sort of get through the straight is or the jump or whatever the the task is at the time it's might be pretty it might not be pretty or you might be like oh i almost died let's do it again cool like (laughs) So it's, it's fair to say part of what drives you is a challenge, like this idea of being scared, that is something that you thrive on. Yeah, I think, I wouldn't know if like scared's the right word. I think when I set my goals, if it's like a challenge that does scare me but excites me just as equal at the same time, if I have those feelings of this might not be achievable, like I might not be able to do three different world championships in downhill mountain biking, four-cross mountain biking, BMX racing, and BMX time trial all in one year and have this goal of (laughs) pretty much three different continents, four world championship titles. And I'm like, it scares me. It excites me. It's four different energy systems. How do I plan it? How do I tack this? But if I can aim for that, then my odds and my chances are that I'm going to land with at least hopefully one. And the year that I really took that approach, it was after the 2012 London Olympic games I took on that approach. I think it was like 72 different flights. It was like crazy year, Uh four different like cycling disciplines. And I walked away in that one calendar year with the BMX world championship title and the mountain bike world championship title. 
and this huge realization for me as to like why why do we like limit ourselves like why do I only like reach for one goal and if I set the bar higher yeah it's going to scare me and be under the pump and (laughs) like (laughs) but then you know aim for the stars like kind of land on the moon it's that same sort of approach don't let others limitations be yours because maybe for them it is impossible and maybe that's an accurate part of their life you got to figure that stuff out for yourself rather than just an accepting an authority telling you you can't do something yeah exactly (laughs) for myself and i'm presuming most people in the world they're never going to go to the olympics as an athlete they're never going to win a world championship in one sport let alone another sport you find yourself in this circumstance and you learn things about yourself through what you're going through. Do you have anything to share that you think, well, for someone who's working a nine to five in a cubicle, they're never going to experience this about themselves. And I've really learned a lot about myself having gone to the Olympics or having become a pro athlete. What, what, what would you think might be useful for someone who will never get experience like a lot of what you have in life? I think what the platform and just the options that I've I've been given and my I guess you could say my talent as well my drive but for someone sitting in a cubicle they might be a mum who might also have another second job on the side and they also would love to run to be the prime minister or president and I think that's like that same similar approach there's you see all of that in the political world of there might be a prime minister of a country and she's a female and there's all this debate around, you know, can she be a mum at the same time as well as run, Mm. you know, a country? It's Mm -hmm. like you, who sets the limitations? So I think on any level, whether it's like sport or life or business, that's where, unless you're like willing to set the bar for yourself higher where you do challenge yourself, and you're scared and excited, and that's your goal, and you write it down and and strive towards it. I think that's where you really come into your own as to what you're physically capable, like what's your personal best. And all the way along throughout my career and then going through injuries, setbacks, or even you know, like now when I've had seven months, six months off the bike last year, five months back on, and now seven months off again, it's really that like, opportunity to reassess and say what's my new personal best what are my limitations how can I work around them and if you're always striving for your personal best within you like that's where the success lies that's where your identity lies and that's sort of where the real life performance angle is it sounds like you're saying each person is individually measured by what they're capable of achieving yeah and I think part of that is also being realistic, mm-hmm. realistic with, I guess, what your strengths are, your weaknesses are, what you're capable of. And I think for me, that's really been a good check-in is to be quite realistic. I know that's a big event. You are definitely a cheerful person, more cheerful than I would be given some of the things you've gone through, perhaps. I don't know, but I, I don't want to dive into that. But before we get there, I'm just kind of continuing down the journey of like one of the things like I found, it was something your dad said in an interview about you. He's like, what stood out? the most to him about you was that you were already giving back to the sport, meaning like your next gen and just you're wanting to be a role model for younger women and to the fact that you were giving back so early. And I thought, wow, that's, that's really cool that, you know, given all this, like you're an Olympian, you're, you know, you've won multiple disciplines. That's the thing that your dad's proud of. And like, that's really cool. And it's, and it's the fact that you're doing it. So I'm kind of curious, 
like in today's world, you know, like political, everyone, everything's a trick, everything's a trap. What's motivating you to do this work of giving back to the, the sport and younger women in particular? For me, it was, I think everyone, everyone has that fire and that little, you know, button. And I think that's where we're all capable of taking action. And that's really, for me growing up, it wasn't necessarily easy. Like I grew up as a little tomboy in BMX racing and wanted to be a professional BMX bandit and women being paid didn't exist. Mm. And my dad said to me, you know, like, if you really want to do this, like you're going to have to help grow the sport at the same time to be even capable of being able to be a professional athlete in your field. So he kind of explained to me, like at 12 years old, like the benefits of like marketing, treating myself as a business, like investing back into yourself because you are going to be the business. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that was a lot to like take on. I was still in school, but I was like, righto dad, like, okay, coach, like put me in, I'm ready. I just had that like mindset of if this is what I got to do and females don't get paid, let me be the first. I remember like growing up, I had a few mentors and that was what really helped me. Like, I think what a lot of people don't realize is I went to my first Olympic games in 2012 in London and I was the world champion at the time. Some could say, you know, I was at the peak of my career and I, my largest sponsor at the time was only $7,000 and that was from a black brand and I was still being supported by my mum and dad. So the momentum from when I was like 12 of starting to build my own website, starting to like write my own like mailing lists through, you know, back then emails that <laughs> we didn't have like MailChimp and all these automated <laughs> things. And, you know, the mentors will always like help me and I'd come home from school and I'd have this like list of this week, we're going to learn how to write a proper email or we're going to add 200 people on LinkedIn or we're going to find a media lady who's going to help deliver my races and content to mainstream media because BMX needs to be in the eyes to help grow the sport so that it can even be recognized on the same level as say football in Australia. Mm. So there was always like tasks to be met. And I think that was where I didn't just sit back and be like, oh, well, poor me. Like I've got to get a job. I can't be a, a BMX racer because it doesn't exist. Mm. The support of my family sort of was like, you know, this is a challenge, this is adversity. Like, and I lit this fire under my butt to be like, this is my path to where I want to be. And um, I took it on. But because it was a challenge and because it it was quite hard to not become resentful of the pathway in the sport that I was in and having the pushback from sponsors because I was a female or, you know, I wanted to, I had like a clothing company at the time that said like, even though I'm a good looking athlete, no, like models sell clothes, athletes don't. And you have these constant like reminders all the way along. And so when I was about 14, I was really at that age going like, do I want to continue with this challenge? Like this momentum is running, but I'm really not seeing the benefits of this yet. And I'm still relying off mum and dad. And then, you know, I go to my first Olympics, I'm still relying off mum and dad. And I'm mm. like, what more is this going to take? So one of my biggest mentors, Lane Beachley, she's a seven time world surf champion. And to have someone who's already made it to look back in their rear view mirror to not leave, not pick the ladder up behind them, but to leave that ladder down and 
bring girls along with her. She set up a foundation aimed for the stars and I was for four years a lucky scholarship holder of that. And I think the biggest part besides the financial part of it that actually related way more to me and had such an impact was the fact that a seven-time world champion had the belief in me and gave me that reassurance that the challenge is in the journey and that's like it's not so much about the destination and you know she to have all that mentor advice that was where as I was then given the opportunity in my career to give back Mm. I didn't want to wait till I was retired I didn't want to wait till I'd been forgotten about and (laughs) I thought I can be you know within the middle of my career still striving for Olympics and I can leave that ladder down behind and I can be at events and start Buchanan next-gen scholarships for girls. Um, so far, there's like 37,000 gone towards nine different girls to get them to the world championships, just like my eyes were exposed at nine years old to the world championship level. That was really what I wanted to give the opportunity for these girls to do as well. It's just as rewarding for me, like when they cross the line and have those successes or they win the scholarship. I think back to that moment with me and Lane Beachley. Mm. So it's that same energy and passion. Um, or like I recently just signed a new uh, sponsor for my scholarships for the girls for the next three years. And they just increased it to five grand each girl for them and their family to get to the world championships. So, you know, when I signed those contracts for like 30 grand, it's just as big as an, a win for myself as it is that I see going back. So yeah, I think the passion for me is knowing the hardships, knowing the hurdles that you have to get over and knowing that I have a platform and the ability to be able to give back. And from there with my like kids books that I just released as well, (laughs) that really stemmed from having my first six months off the bike after a major trauma accident. I, knew that I was going to have six months off the bike and thought again, you know, what are some ways that I, I can give back? And that's when I started a kid's book, Girls Can Be, with the main character, Caroline B in it. And book number one um, was about dress-up day and sort of, yeah, going back to like being this wanting to dress up as a BMX racer but <laughs> being worried about that identity and not dressing up as a fairy princess or a vet or, you know, I was the odd one out in school but – to embrace your identity, to embrace your career, who you want to be and where you want to go. So that's sort of the storyline of book number one for age demographic of six to eight-year-old girls specifically. Yeah, another thing you did I thought was really cool of you was like, I guess you were given, was it DK? They gave you the opportunity to design your signature bike. And Yeah, they they did. It was after um, I think I'd won maybe my third world championship. Uh, they sort of said, would you like to do a signature product? And I think – they were expecting me to want to do, you know, a, a signature bar or like, you know, a grip or something like <laughs> that, or maybe a, a bike for the pros. I said, well, what about a balance bike? Like the grassroots two to five-year-olds um, getting more kids on bikes and just selling that passion and love of the sport. So they, uh, they were involved in it and that was one of the best like projects I think I'd ever done because it'd be like so surreal to turn around and see like a little kid in a diaper at two years old at the BMX track. And like when I started, balance bikes didn't even exist. I had training wheels. So, I mean, the future of the sport is like so bright. 
I think that really shows your heart. You're given any opportunity and your focus is on, I want to make, you know, two to five year olds as thrilled about this sport as I was. It seems like that's missing a lot. Like a lot of, you know, politics, everything's viewed through the lens of power and everything's viewed as, you know, selfish or what's in it for me. And it, it's it's nice to see someone who's genuinely like you just enjoy giving back. It's something you've experienced and you enjoy doing that. I think that's really cool to see. And like your dad said, that's more impressive than your wins and all your professional successes, just that you care about giving back, which is cool to see. Yeah, well, I think also, too, I experienced it at an even like bigger level, um, which is probably to this day one of my biggest career highlights. And whilst it was one of the most challenging times of my professional career. It was a moment that I realized like sport, what the essence and nature of like being a a true champion is and a true competitor. And Mm. when I was at the Olympic games in Rio, I'd crashed out in the semifinal, devastated in tears. Like I wear my heart on my sleeve. So couldn't hold them back, but I had my Australian flag around me and I walked up into the stands and, There was, you know, tens of thousands of people just walled each side of the the Rio BMX track and it was a sea of Colombian colours because the two-time Olympic champion at the time, uh, Mariana Pajon, she's uh, pretty much the Justin Bieber of of (laughs) South America. So, you know, it was really just a sea of Colombians and when I walked up into the, the crowd, Mariana's family and her grandparents were all there and they basically like ran down to me and gave me a hug and I had this like standing ovation of what would have been maybe like 8,000 people just all staring, cheering me on. And the Olympic Mm. final hadn't even come up on the gate yet. We're in this uh, time media delay between the semifinal and final. And I remember sort of standing there in cheers being like, whether I'd won the Olympic final and got a medal Mm. or I crashed out in semifinal and I'm up here to watch my competitors and to watch Mariana Pajon, who we'd always been fierce rivals, but clean, clean battle rivals towards each other, mm-hmm. to have that kind of respect and admiration from them and have a standing ovation, it was like a real reality check to go, they're both wins, mm. two different concepts. One's this great feeling that you've won and you've conquered and you've had the success, and the other one was you've <laughs> crashed out the <laughs> semi and you haven't achieved what you want to achieve. But, you know, at the end of the day, still to have that standing ovation and that recognition as a champion. So that's what's through the highs and the lows and now being out of my career for so long as well. I think that's really helped me with just my general happiness, my identity and being able to sit out of my career for would be two years by the time I get back onto the BMX start gate. But yeah, really 13 months off a bike. I'm ready to dive into that, but I do have one last question about what you just shared. A lot of people admire athletes, and I think there's something about like the conflict of, like you're saying, like clean competitors, no one likes a cheater, but someone who's competing honestly, do you think that conflict like forces you to go really deep with yourself because you're putting it all on the line in front of all these people, and then to to lose and yet still experience like ovation and love and to be gracious about it? Do you think that's what people admire or look up to when they see competitors out there competing and winning the right way? Why do we all enjoy sports and watching it so much? Yeah, I think it's just seeing the rawness of it and I guess the tenacity that athletes have that they'll get knocked down, they stand back up, they go again. And when you are on the front line of your career, you are completely exposed to 
not only through like now there's all the avenues of social media and you're exposed to, you put your whole life and your world out there. So there's going to be the goods and the bads and same, you know, when you're at the Olympics and there's the positive angle and then there's also, you've got to be out of front what people have to say as well. So yeah, you, you've got to be able to have thick skin and be ready for David Beckham and the Royal family to be staring back at you when you're on the start gate of the, oh, the final in London. And you're kind of like, I'm here to race to a job, but I'd love to meet David Beckham right now. <laughs> um, but I need to race. And then you don't get the result you want to anyway. And then you're devastated. It's like, I mean, yeah, the highs and lows are pretty extreme. <laughs> That would make the quiet impression if you just rode over and said hi to him when the race started. <laughs> <laughs> I should have not. <laughs> yeah. Maybe if you could have two opportunities to do it, yeah. Oh, man. Well, you're talking about athletes getting knocked down, it's, it's one thing to experience injury or loss in the arena of sports, which is kind of expected or it's part of, it's part of what's known. But kind of catch us up on, like you've mentioned, that you've gone through multiple bouts of not being able to do the sport you love and that is your career and something you've dedicated yourself to and worked so hard for. Fill us in on like what, what's been going on there. Why haven't you been able to uh, race or bike? Basically like New Year's Eve, Eve of 2017, coming into 2018, I was in like a off-road vehicle accident that side-by-side buggy rolled down a fire road and I ended up underneath it and as I caught the roll cage and it rolled over me basically the weight of the vehicle crushed me and where I grabbed the roll cage it was right on the level of sort of um, my chest and sternum so as my sternum gave and its job is to obviously protect your organs which it did it fully snapped all the way through and the uh, one of the pieces of my sternum bone then punctured the lining of my heart wall, double punctured and collapsed both my lungs. So my heart was bleeding. uh, The wall was bleeding into my lungs at the same point. And then I also like broke my nose. So yeah, the, it was quite a traumatic experience and honestly super lucky and fortunate that I'd done hypoxia breathing in the past. I'd been to meditation retreats. I'd worked on chi breathing I'd really worked on like channeling um that energy and emotion and to go into that meditative state like straight away for four and a half hours to get to the rural hospital to then delay to get to the city hospital before I had my lung drains in and went into ICU yeah like that sort of breathing and everything saved my life so when I recovered from that surgery from initially over the space of a year I had nine different uh, surgery procedures and three major open chest surgeries on my sternum. The first one that I had, the titanium plate ended up snapping. So when they had to go back in and redo it, the second one was then a faulty screw and plate system that didn't work. And within four days, the top five bolts had pulled back out of my sternum um, every Mm -hmm. time I breathed. So then they had to take that system out and then it took two surgeons a third time to put another plate and screw system into my chest, rebolt it back together. And they also ran wire cables between my heart and my sternum and basically threaded them through and braced my sternum to fixate it that way. So it's like three, three-way brace now. Yeah. All of these have kept me uh, on and off my bike over the past year and a half. So whilst I did return to the bike, I wasn't at the level 
to be competing in BMX racing that I needed to be. I'd missed the whole preseason. I'd missed my strength blocks. So naturally I sort of thought, you know, what can I do with the cards that I'd been dealt at the time? And there was an opportunity with freestyle BMX evolving into the Olympic cycle. So I decided at, yeah, 27 years old, I'd take up a new sport and <laughs> learn aerial awareness, turn my backyard into more of a skate park compound and, and learn freestyle. So learn the backflip, 360s, flares, which is like a 180 backflip, dive into it that way. So, yeah, I went through to China to the World Championships and World Cup level and made it to the top 10. And then that was when I had that reset of having to go back into these surgeries for my sternum again now. I'm currently, yeah, nine weeks post-surgery and due to be back on the bike the start of June of 2019. Yeah, the way you say it, like if I was judging it based off your tone, I'd be like, yeah, that sounds like you're winning the Olympics. Like you're so, you're so kind, you're so happy. Anyone going through an injury like that, it wasn't something you caused, you're riding along. This is something that happened to you. There's so many reasons for you to blame life to blame others to be upset to say this isn't fair to say why me i'm giving back i'm doing all the things right why how have you not allowed like negativity or how how's that not consumed you or this just is not fair like it doesn't on any level it's like why why did this happen to you how has that not been something that's like consumed you oh yeah no it definitely has been there i think it, it's human nature for that for that fear to be there like when when I'm going into these open heart surgeries and you're signing the waiver that it's 50% mortality rate if your sternum bone gets an infection during the surgery, like, are you okay to proceed? You sign the dotted line. Those moments, like not only the initial injury and accident, 20 minutes after when I was on the way to the first hospital, I felt all this internal bleeding. I felt myself swelling I couldn't breathe. Like how I explain to people um, is basically if you like cover your mouth and your nose and you just have the little bit of the air going into your nose, that was really how I breathed for like four and a half hours. So yeah, that feeling of kind of the anxiety, not being able to breathe, knowing that everything is shutting down. When you sort of stare that in the face, like I, I said to my friend who was with me, I sort of said, oh, like, what's in what's in my chest? Like, what could have happened? And then you start thinking, you know, all, all your organs, every what if, every worst moment. And I just sit, turned to him and I said, like, I'm not ready to die. And I had those words come out of my mouth. And he said, no, you're not. Like, come back to the moment in one, two, out one, two, in one, two, out one, two. And we did that for, you know, the next four hours. So your body naturally goes into fight or flight. And I've had some of the darkest moments over the last year and a half I've ever had. Throughout my life, like anyone, you have a lot of adversities. My brother broke his neck and he was a paraplegic and regained feeling. My family home when I was 12 burnt down the Canberra bushfires. So materialistically, like our family lost everything besides our trophies, our bikes and our passports. So we've kind of had to rebuild a lot of times. And through this, I just see it as that same challenge. Like these are the cards that are being dealt. How can I handle it at the time? And just to rebuild again and to find my new personal best. And that's like not to say that like I, I have had many dark days, definitely gone through different bouts of anxiety and depression over the last year and a half. Mm. But I think keeping a strong team around you, um, having daily 
mindfulness activities. So I wake up every day and my alarm goes off and it's three things I'm grateful for. And every day it's something different to check back in with the small life realities and not focus on everything that is so negative. You know, it's that just daily discipline to train that every day. And I think that's really kept me on track as well as the ability to refocus myself to finding new sponsors for next gen or creating another kid's book or working with new sponsors and my agency going and doing a Brista course or I did a, a week meditation retreat. So yeah, I guess keeping, keeping busy, but also working on body, mind and soul and the whole aspect of being an athlete. Like I can't work on my body at the moment, but I've really taken this time mentally to approach it as this is one of the greatest challenges of my life right now. I have to be patient. The time's ticking to Tokyo Olympics next year. I'm really only going to have six months time window to qualify for my third Olympic games, but controlling what I can control sort of right now. And when I, when I was about like 12, I went to Argentina for a world championship and another mentor in Australia, who's an Olympic marathon runner, he told me then, he said, you know, if you can be the whole yellow pages phone book, which in Australia, it's like, yeah, the old phone books that we used Mm -hmm. to have. He said, you know, if you can turn to any page and have that skill set, then that's where your success will come. And when you need it, it's there. And he sort of said, you know, you can look at a lot of athletes and just like you can look at a phone book, you can't tell if any pages are missing until you turn to that page. And I think that was a really big lesson that I've always focused on is making sure that on the bike, off the bike, you know, the skill sets of building my brand or working with sponsors, being accountable. That's really helped now that I've had one of the biggest challenges to be out of my career. Fortunately enough, like none of my sponsors have dropped me. They've all turned around and sort of said, well, we support you because of who you are, not what you do. And my girls that I mentor and any athlete that comes to me and says, you know, how do I establish the long-term partnerships, the, you know, 15 years that you've been working with Oakley or Maxis or these other sponsors, Mm. you know, how have you established that and how are they still supporting you when you haven't been on a BMX racing podium for, it'll be two years by the time I get back on there. So yeah, that's, I think that's really like helped me through this uh, adversity. And what you're just sharing, I think, I think if people are honest, as much as it's like glamorous to envision having the professional success you did, like imagine me at the Olympics or imagine myself winning the champ. I, I think, I think that's popular. I think that sells. But if, I think if people were honest about what truly mattered in life, the, the ability to maintain the attitude, I'm not, you know, there's ups and downs. I'm not saying it's perfect, but it's like just the, to be where you're at right now, that seems like a greater achievement. I don't know how that that's popular or how to convey that. Like there's not, you know, maybe Mother Teresa, maybe there's a couple of people that are like fake known for being like just an amazing person. But how do you feel about that? Which do you think is your greatest achievement? The fact that you've won all these awards or the fact that you're going through these tough times and you've surrounded yourself with people and just you're responding the way you are? Um, I would probably say like who inspires me is obviously athletes. I think they're the modern day superheroes, but the ones that have been trailblazers they've really been a little bit rebellious in their own sense like they've forged their own trail but I would say that's 
probably like their greatest achievements and like why I've been so drawn to watching those athletes. And I would hope for me that that's, I guess, part of the legacy that I leave is to inspire more people to not just fit inside the box, but break that mold. Very visible if you win a race, but the darkest times in your life, I don't know that that is equally looked up to, I guess, in society, if that makes sense. No, I think it's more about the comeback stories or, yeah, especially like the media, there's never that like in between. It's like black or white. No one really shines light on the gray areas and that's kind of that in between. That's, that's really life. That's where everyone sits and right now, having an injury and trying to be patient and coming back to my career and trying to find that, that new personal best, to, whether it's be a world champion again, or, or maybe I win, win a gold medal. I'm in Tokyo. I think <laughs> right now I'm in that gray area. Um, uh-huh. and there's so much success that lies in this gray area of staying. Yeah. True to yourself, continuing to be that brand, continuously to give back, to get up every day, to not destruct I guess, what you've built and who you are, which naturally, like, is the human response to self-destruct. I guess one way of looking at it is, you know, we're all we're all going to eventually grow old and age and not, you know, if you're 80, you're probably not going to win the Olympics. And that's probably not something you're upset about at 80, just because you never had an expectation that that was realistic. But for yourself, like this all happened when you had every expectation, you had all the plans, everything made this seem as unfair as it is and as painful as it is. And it's like, that's the heart of a champion. That's someone who battles back when no one's watching and has every reason to have grown accustomed to a certain level of success and life is going good. And it's, yeah, I guess it's inspiring to me to look at how you're handling this and saying, well, which is harder to handle this the way you are when no one's really watching and no one really cares or to perform in front of a bunch of people and they're all cheering for you and you get rewarded it's like, it sure seems like this is in one sense, a much harder struggle. Not, and I think everyone understands how hard it is to be a world-class athlete. Like that's no, there's a reason it's so greatly admired because it's not easy at all, but it's like, I almost wonder like what's been the harder struggle for you bouncing back from this or, you know, putting in the work to win a medal. Yeah, this, I this right now is definitely my, my greatest challenge yet. And I can like definitely say the comeback from here to be at my new personal best will be my greatest achievement because it is, yeah, personally the greatest challenge. I've sunk to a deeper low physically, mentally, emotionally that I've mm-hmm. ever been. So to come back from that, I mean, that's we're all on our own journey. So for mm-hmm. me personally, that'll be, that'll be my greatest achievement. Yeah. And it feels like it should be celebrated as such. Like this is, incredible that you're you're going down this journey and one of one of the things I think it was like this like you said it was your third surgery dealing with your sternum and I think the dental doctors say that if this plate doesn't work or doesn't work out they're gonna have to cut it out which would mean your heart's exposed and you couldn't really professionally race again yeah I think through all of this like surgeons and everyone don't sugarcoat anything they they say it how it is and you've got to be realistic and that's mm-hmm that's where it's been hard to sort of be like, yep, 50% mortality rate. Let's hope I don't get mm. the uh, infection right now. So, yeah, the same thing as they said, 
third time round, um, especially like cash paying the surgeries as well. So it was, you know, when you're already a hundred grand deep in medical bills mm-hmm. and the surgeons say like, you know, you have to recover this time. You know, we have to be even more cautious than last time. We're extending the recovery time dates. We're all ships on deck where we've got two surgeons now. Yeah, if this doesn't work, then basically the next option was to pull out, either create another brace system where they were going to vertically bar from every rib horizontally left to right and I'd have bars across my chest. That's like another option. Definitely not comfortable. Then limits your breathing and that would limit my performance as well. And then obviously other option is to, I broke my sternum quite low down um, that they could basically like just take out the bottom part of my sternum and I could live a normal human life like that. But it would mean that I wouldn't be able to be the athlete that I want to be and it would risk my heart and lungs being a bit more exposed and just my sternum not doing the job that it's allowed to do. So uh, in mountain biking, if you stare at the tree, you're going to hit the tree. And that's always been like one of the sayings keeps you on track. And through all these surgeries, I haven't wanted to look down that route. I've tried to keep that like positivity every day to say, like, bring that like love to my sternum to be like, it saved my mm-hmm. life. It kept my organs mm-hmm. healthy. It actually did its job. It broke. But yeah, and I think a lot of that like positive healing energy has uh, been a big part of it too. No need to borrow tomorrow's problems today. Yeah, I got you. Just deal with that when you get there. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, no, I hear you. Well, yeah, and I know, like, I, yeah, I really appreciate you sharing. Like, I know this is, I can't imagine how tough this is to go through. And it's just, like, it's almost on, you know, it's more unbelievable than winning a, you know, a gold medal or winning a championship that this is something that you're able to be this positive about. And like you're saying, you built this community, your brands, like, that seems like, in what world does a brand not drop you? Like, is everyone, yeah, that's just incredible that, you know, you've, you've able to establish this, like you're saying, your metaphor of the, the yellow pages that you put in the work in all these different areas. And yeah, that's quite impressive to hear. Thank you. I think for anyone that wants to follow along for the journey, like my social media is Caroline Buchanan or on Instagram's at cbuchanan68, which is my race number. If you want to continue following my, my road to recovery and back to the 2020 Olympics, and we're all, every, for you to get a gold there would be, uh, that would be unbelievable. And I'm sure everyone's rooting for that. One <laughs> one quick question. The, the, the Go, was it's, maybe it's not a GoFundMe, but the, someone, they did set up an account to help with the medical expenses. Does that, if that, if the goal wasn't reached, do you still get the money that's put in there? Or is that only if the goal is reached? No. So I still, whatever goes in helps go directly towards my medical bills um so yeah it's actually only open for the next week so a little bit of time left i guess if uh the podcast is live in the next week then there's still that opportunity to support and that's roadtorecovery.com or you can google road to recovery um, and carolyn buchanan i'll link through to them my name Hello.